Well, we are in week five of our series of walking through the Bible. This morning, we're going and giving an overview of the book of Revelations. So far, we've seen in the series, in week one, the Old Testament, which we gave the name, The Mystery. Week two, we looked at the Gospels, which we titled, The Man. It was all about Jesus Christ. Week three, we looked at Acts, the spread of the Gospel throughout the known world at that time, the creation of the church. We gave that name, The Movement. Week four, the epistles, the mechanics. This was literally the who, what, when, where, why, and how these churches were to function as believers in Jesus Christ. So that was the mechanics. And this morning, we're looking at week five, Revelations, the manifestation. As I ask around, it seems as Christians, we have the least amount of knowledge regarding the book of Revelation. But this is one of the most glorious books we have in the New Testament where God has given us some incredible promises. Our hope in a future eternity with Him we find so clearly spelled out in Revelations. It's something that we should be praying for, hoping for, excited about as we're worshiping these songs. We're singing, come Lord Jesus, come. Not because we love our life here, but because we love Him so much that where we're going is greater and better than what we have here. That, that this is not our home. That where Revelation teaches us what our home is, this is preparing us for glory with God. That's what Revelations points us to. The politically correct thing to do would to not be to preach on Revelation because there's so many views, so many people have different opinions about Revelation. But if that were true, there's a lot of things we wouldn't preach on as a church if we were politically correct. And to have a summary, an overview of the Bible, we have to go to Revelations. We must remember that all of Scripture, the Old Testament included, and Revelation has been given to us by God for this life, for life in godliness. It says all things have been given to us for those purposes. So I want to begin. Would you join with me in prayer as we open up God's word this morning? God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the promises. God, we know that Revelation is a difficult book. Many of us are unfamiliar with much that it contains. God, I pray as I present a perspective of this book, some here may have never heard this morning, that I pray that it glorifies you. God, may you give us wisdom and discernment as we open up your word. God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word that you've given us, that we can know you, because this is the living word. God, I pray that you may use me this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what we need to see to bring you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We officially as a church don't take a stand on what someone must believe in Revelations. We have a membership class upcoming next week, and one of the things that I, I teach in that class is there's certain doctrines that we have to believe. They're essential doctrines of the church, and there's other ones which we can disagree on and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, eschatology, the, the study of end times, looking at the book of Revelation, is one of those areas where, where you don't have to be dogmatic in. And so we as a church don't officially take a stand on any of these views we have. This is an area of freedom. 
But as we begin, there's really two main ways to view Revelations. When you come to Revelations, you're going to see it one of two ways. And how you see this book, how you read Revelations, depends on how you answer one question. That one question is, to whom was Revelation originally written to? Who was the intended audience? Because Scripture always has a primary audience and a secondary audience. The primary audience was the the people that that specific letter was written to. And then we as future generations, future Christians, have the Word of God that we gain insight and wisdom to, and God's Word is still active, and He speaks to us. But we don't apply it directly to our lives the same way the original people got that. For example, Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth, not to the church of Marco Island. So what we saw written to them we can apply to us in our day in a a systematic manner. And so we have to ask the question, whom was Revelation originally written to? The first camp, this is the most popular view today, promoted by the Left Behind series or the books, if you've seen the movie or read the books. The first camp would say Revelations, which is going to be represented by my Bible open here to Revelations. They'd go over here in the past or 2015 and say, Revelations is all future, things to come in the future. So the original or the intended audience is a future people. It could be us, but probably not. It could be our children or our great-grandchildren. But we know it wasn't our grandparents, according to this view, because things didn't happen in their life. So they see Revelations as a future thing to happen. That's one camp. That's seemingly the most popular today by some of the movies and books out. There's a second camp, which is what I'm teaching on this morning, which is what I personally tend to more agree with that I see in Scripture. And this would be the view that we're here in the future, 2015, and we're looking back on Revelations, and we see a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it has already taken place in church history. And that's probably a brand new view to you. But it's not a brand new view to church history. Thousands of years, this view was the mainstream view. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Spurgeon, these men believed the view you're going to hear this morning. So this camp sees a lot of this happening in the past, and there's still some things in Revelation that us today are looking forward to in the future. So those are the two main views. I want to say that within each of these camps, there's subcamps, And there's a lot of people over here that break down, a lot of people over here that break down And they agree and disagree on things. But in both of these camps are godly men and women who love the Lord. And so let's jump in. Revelations was written to seven literal churches, warning them of things to come in the near future. The message of Revelation is a letter of encouragement to persevere in the midst of persecution, to endure in the midst of trials, that God is faithful And at the end of the day, God will crush and conquer his enemies. That is the letter of Revelation. If you have your Bible this morning, I want us to turn to Revelations chapter 1, verse 19. Revelations chapter 1, verse 19. One of my goals here is is to give you a lot of information to share with you kind of an overview of the book. And you may leave here with more questions than answers. And that's a good thing when you go study it out, right? So I want to just kind of give a broad overview. 
Revelations 119 is a roadmap for the entire book. It tells us that the book is broken up into three different sections that is essential for us to understand. Revelations 119 says this, and it's speaking to John, who received this revelation from God, and he tells him to write, therefore, the things that you have seen. So John received a vision of things that were going to happen in the future, and God tells John, write the things that you have seen in this vision, things that were going to happen in the future. Those that are, so that's the second category, present, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So I want to break this down. This chart is going to stay up here all morning. Chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation, according to this view, are the things that are. The things that are. So things that are, chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 1 through 3, this letter was written to seven literal churches. And chapters 1 through 3 actually talk about what's happening in those literal churches at that time. Back around 60 AD, around 40 years after the time of Christ. So then you have the things that you've seen. So John received this revelation. Things that you've seen that is going to happen in the near future. Chapters 4 through 20. 20 is a transitional chapter. Part of it applies in the past. Part of it is still to come in the future. So then take place after this. So John's told the things that were, the things that are, the things that are near to come, the things that are going to take place after all the other stuff. So 20 to 22 and we'll break this down, is still to come in our future. I want us to look at Revelation kind of like a letter. And imagine a letter with a note taped on the front and a note taped on the back. That's pretty much what Revelations is. There's a note on the front, there's a note on the back, but the mainstream part of it is a big letter in the middle. So let's turn to Revelations chapter 1, verse 1. Revelations chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to this, and and think through, if you were given this letter, what you would think. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. So, if you received that letter, what would you think? What would I think? Well, I would probably think, if it's true, and I believe it's from God, that the time is near. These are things that must soon take place, what's in this letter. And that's what this church was told. Have you ever wondered why Revelations teaches us in the very first couple of verses, that if you read this book, you'll receive a blessing. I I thought every time I read God's word, I receive a blessing, right? I mean, why does Revelation, and and I didn't understand this until I began to understand this other view, why why is Revelation different? How many of you have heard, if you want to receive a blessing in life, read Revelation? Ever heard anything like that? Okay, a couple of hands. So I didn't understand that. Well, it makes perfect sense, according to the view I'm teaching this morning, Because if this was teaching the church things that were going to happen within a couple of years, and this was prophetic, and Jesus was saying to John, write these things down, the things that are, the things that are to come shortly, and the things that are to come after that, they would be blessed. 
because they would have a heads up of what's going to happen. What we see through 4 through 20 is persecution coming to the church. And it's identified where the persecution's coming from, how long it's going to be there. The message of Revelations is endure. Endure throughout the persecution. It's only going to last a short time. And so this was an encouragement to these early churches. Let's look at verse 4. This really identifies who the letter was written to. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Verse 11 specifies these churches. I want to show us a map here. And again, one view sees these all as symbolic churches in the future. That's the view today, dispensational view, left behind view. That's not the view I'm teaching this morning. Because what we see in the past in church history is that these seven churches were actually in the same geographic area. John received the revelation at Patmos here on this little island. And the seven churches were located on seven literal trade routes in the Roman Empire. So these seven churches are right around the same area. And they received these actual letters. So if this church, these churches, received these letters, and they opened it up and they read it, and they read, these are things that must soon take place. The time is near. If you read this book, you'll receive a blessing for the time is near, we should begin to think, well, why do we take it out of context and apply it in the future? That's why, in this view, we're looking at it as this was written to those early churches. I'm stressing this point because if you begin to read it like it's written to us, it changes the whole context of the whole book. So it's very important. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 22, verse 10. The book ends with a reminder to this early church. So it goes through all these things. Then the book ends with a reminder. And he says this in Revelations 22.10. He said to me, speaking to John, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is near. Now this is compared to Daniel chapter 12 in the Old Testament. Daniel, and we'll just have this on the screen in In uh, chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So Daniel was given a prophecy of things that didn't apply to his time, but applied to a future time. So since it didn't apply to what he was going through right then, and Israel and the nation was going through, he said, God said, seal up the book. So the book is sealed, right? And it was... Over 400 years until the book was to be opened. And so he's told to seal up the book because the time is not yet. But in Revelations, we're told, do not seal up the book. Now, if it was going to be 2,000 years later, I would think God would have told him, seal up the book. The time is not yet. But he said, do not seal up the book for the time is near. Revelation 22:20, 20, 10 verses later. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So I want to break this down. I've kind of given you a synopsis of where we're going. I'm sure some of your heads are spinning. So we're going to look through the very beginning where we actually see this in the scriptures. So turn back to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to see that these churches were actually given information that pertained to them in the past. Revelation chapter 2. We'll be in a 
verse 13 through 15. So this was written to the church of Pergamum. There were seven churches. This particular part was written to this individual church. And it says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So this was a bad place where they were at, considered Satan's throne. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed, past tense. So there was a person named Antipas who was killed. He was martyred for the faith. Is that a future thing? Or is that a past thing? He was literally in that church. If they read this as a church, would they have been like, who is Antipas? Antipas was a real guy who died in their church. Among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching. So there's present tense, present context, which teaches these are the things that are. This letter was given to a little church who were going through these things and who were holding false teaching, and there was martyrs in that church. So things that are. Let's move to chapters 4 through 20, things you have seen. This is the largest bulk of the book. During this time, the church was under severe persecution. I want to highlight here behind me, this is where we're going this morning. This is a timeline of this view. So we have the Old Testament here. Old Testament era would have extended way back here. We have the cross of Jesus Christ around 33 AD. The destruction of a temple. And we, according to this view, are living sometime in this present church age. So I don't want to overwhelm you too much, but let's look at that. There were two great enemies of the church mentioned in Revelations. The first enemy is Judaism. Judaism. So Christians believing in Jesus Christ were being persecuted by the Jews because they didn't believe what they believed anymore. They were considered heretics, false teachers. But the other enemy was pagan Rome Empire. The pagan Roman Empire. So Revelations 4-20 through are about the defeat of these two great enemies. Now this church, these churches in the past were facing intense persecution at the hands of these two great enemies. So they were given this letter of revelations, and it greatly encouraged them that God was going to deal with these two enemies. So when you read the New Testament, we see scores of Jewish people reject the gospel, and they decide to stick to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Why? Have you ever thought, why? Why aren't the Jews sacrificing today? Why did that stop? How did that stop? Well, God destroyed the central piece for their whole system. What was that piece? The temple. They, they went and they sacrificed at the temple, but God destroyed the temple because the temple was now what? The church, Jesus Christ. It wasn't about the temple anymore. And so God used the Roman Empire, an enemy of the church, and the Jewish system and used both of them to destroy each other. Now, this is the same thing we see in the Old Testament. Israel and Assyria. God used Assyria, an enemy of Israel, as a tool to bring about his purpose. And so that central piece, the temple, was destroyed, which we're going to see here shortly. Revelations 11.2, you don't have to turn there. But John is told, do not measure the temple. Because the temple is going to be handed over to the Gentiles and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So we're told in Revelations the temple is still standing. 
It's still standing in the book of Revelation, which according to this view today, the dispensational view is a problem because the temple's not standing today like it was. So this is why this view, who views all of Revelation in the future, believes that the temple has to be rebuilt. Sacrifices have to be reinstituted only so that in the future it can be destroyed. Okay? So that's what they believe. This other view I'm teaching this morning says it's not a problem because Scripture said the temple was standing. This was written to the early church, and within a couple of years, just as was prophesied, the temple was destroyed. So it makes perfect sense. Jesus taught that the temple was going to be destroyed throughout the Gospels. I want us to look at that. Let's turn to Luke 21, verse 5. Luke 21, verse 5. We find these type of stories, if you've read through the Gospels, and you read in the abomination of desolation, or this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is what Jesus is talking about, the destruction of the temple. Luke 21, verse 5, it says, While some were still speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, As for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus reveals to them, the temple was going to be destroyed. And then they ask him, the disciples ask him, verse 7, when will these things be and what will be the sign and when these things are to take place? Jesus goes on to reveal to them the answer in verses 8 through 31. Look in verse 9. Remember, is he talking to us or is he talking to his disciples? He's talking to his disciples in the Gospels. And he says this, when you the disciples hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but then the end will not be at once. But before, in verse 12, says, before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. That's exactly what we find in church history. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman emperor Titus. And before that time, between 64 and 68 AD, the Christians were intensely persecuted. So Jesus is saying, before the temple will be destroyed, they will lay hands on you, they will persecute you, and they will deliver you up to synagogues and to prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So Rome is referenced there, and the Jewish people are referenced there as the persecutors of Christians. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Verse 20, Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And then he warns them and tells them what to do. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter back into it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you're in the city and you see armies surrounding the city, don't stay in the city. And then he says this, if you're outside the city and you're in the field and you're doing work and you see armies coming, don't run into the city. That would have been the natural thing to do because when an army surrounds your city, you run into the fortified place. Jerusalem had big, thick walls. It was considered a safe place. But Jesus warned them around 30 
to 30 through 33 AD, when these things happen in the future, don't stay in the city. And that's exactly what we have in church history. That the Roman armies came, the Christians saw it, and hundreds of thousands of Christians fleed. They ran to the hills. Jesus said, don't even go back for your stuff. Run for the hills. So the Jewish people were slaughtered. It was a massacre. This was, this was a horrible event in church history. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed in Jerusalem during this time. But the Christians, because they listened to what was in Revelation, and they listened to Jesus Christ, ran for the hills. Let's turn to verse 24 there. Or let's go to verse 29. Jesus told them when these things were going to take place. He gave them a parable. He said, look at the fig trees and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you know that summer's coming near. So he's saying, listen, when, when the trees start to, to bloom and to have its leaf, you know that summer's coming near. And then he says this, so also when you see these things taking place, everything he just talked about, right? The wars, rumors of wars, the persecutions, the temple, all of these things. He says, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. That's why in this view, there is the kingdom of God that we are living in that was instituted when that happened, which we'll get to shortly, but I run to reference it. Verse 32, truly I say to you, remember he's speaking to that generation, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things are taken place. He says it three times in the different Gospels. He's speaking to people about the coming destruction of the temple, and he says, this generation, you standing here today, hearing me, will not pass away until these things take place. So, what does that mean? Well, a generation, according to the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, was 40 years. That's a generation. So Jesus is saying this sometimes, sometime around 30 A.D., within 40 years, a generation, what happened? The temple was destroyed, exactly how Jesus said it was going to be. I want to discuss another major character that some of us always think about when we think of the book of Revelations, and he appears in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. So I want us to turn to Revelation 13, 18, this is a major character. It says this, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number is 666. So this person we typically call the Antichrist today, right? I want us to know that the word Antichrist actually is not in the book of Revelation at all. We find it in First and Second John, and we're told that Antichrist, there's many of them. There's not just one. There's many of them, and anybody who rejects Jesus as the Christ has the spirit of being an Antichrist. So there's this misconception that Revelations talks heavily about the Antichrist. It doesn't even use the word. It actually says there is a person, there is a number of a beast, and it says to call for wisdom. Let the person calculate the number of the beast. And back in this time, there's actually a character that would have fit this description. This terminology is interesting. It says, have wisdom. 
and that the Christians should calculate the number. It's the number of a man, and his number is 666. So what could this have meant to early Christians? Well, back in that ancient time, the alphabet often doubled as a numerical system. And so there's a candidate that would have fit that time. His name was Nero, and he was an evil Roman emperor. Some of his contemporaries in his own day gave him the title the beast because of the cruel acts he would do to others. He would dress up like an animal in the Colosseum and maul and attack people without any, any weapons. He would just use his teeth and his hands. So they gave him the name the beast. This individual murdered his own family. He murdered his pregnant wife. He committed atrocities that are inappropriate to even talk about this morning. And so this was this individual. But what about 666 and his name? Well, I have a a numbering chart here for us. As I mentioned, back in that ancient time, each letter was given a number. Almost like A could equal 1, B equals 2, C equals 3. have a chart here for us this morning. So the Hebrew alphabet was each given a letter, represented a number. Nero's name and Kenneth Gentry has done the research on this. It says this, It has been documented by archaeological finds that a first century Hebrew spelling of Nero's name provides us precisely with the value of 666. So here's another chart. This is, this is a statue of him from history, but this is his name spelled out in Hebrew. And this is what we would have found in Revelations. And so the Christians, this was written to the early church, were given a hint of who this person of sin who was going to persecute them would be. And his name, if they would have calculated it out, would have equaled 666. This is the same person that persecuted the Christians from 64 AD to 68 AD. If you remember earlier, we were told in Revelations chapter 11, verse 2, that the temple would be handed over to the Gentiles and it would be trampled under for 42 months. Well, the persecution of Nero to the Christians began in 64 AD, and it ended until Nero's death was suicide, which is referenced in Revelations, in the June of 68 AD, which was a period of 42 months. The same thing we were told about in Revelations 11.2. So by the time we've moved through all the way to chapter 19, we've seen the two great enemies of the church destroyed. The Judeus system and then also the Roman Empire. Those two are being defeated. And then we come to Revelations 19 and we see that Jesus Christ, after the defeat of these enemies, sits on his throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's move to Revelation 19 verse 4. Revelation 19 verse 4. Great conversation for the potluck today over after church, right? So take good notes. Revelation 19, verses 4 through 6. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many 
peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. I want us to move to Revelations chapter 20. Revelations 20 is a transitional chapter. It states it so in the book. It's not like we just say, let's make this a transitional chapter. It actually says that part of it applies to them, part of it applies to us, and we'll get to that. In Revelations 20, God now turns and addresses the instigator, the real enemy referred to as the dragon, Satan himself. God always seems to deal with Satan last. So example in Genesis, there was sin, Adam, Eve, Satan. Well, he deals with Adam first, and then he deals with Eve, and then he deals with Satan. Here in Revelations, he deals with the Jewish system, the persecutors of the church, the Romans, and then he deals lastly with Satan himself and his kingdom. So beginning in Revelation chapter 20, we see that Satan is bound and thus no longer able to stop the spread of the gospel. So let's look. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan himself, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, this thousand years is referred to as the millennium, right? You've maybe heard the talk of the millennium in the end times, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This can be a literal thousand years, or it can be symbolic. The view I'm teaching this morning is this is a symbolic period of time. We have a chart here that discusses this. David Chilton says this, the number of 10 contains the idea of fullness of quantity. In other words, it stands for manyness. A thousand multiplies and intensifies this. A thousand was the biggest number they had to share things and to discuss things. So for instance, Psalms 50 verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. Well, what about the cattle on a thousand and first hill? Is that God's? Yes. So this is symbolic of all the hills. Many hills, all hills are God's hills. Well, here in Revelation, a thousand years is a long period of time where Satan is bound from doing one thing. That one thing is deceiving the nations. And so, symbolically, a thousand equals a long period of time. I want to get back to the text in verse 2. It says, He sees the dragon... He bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, he threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might, and this specifies in what way Satan is bound today, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. So that's why in this view we see the binding of Satan that happened. And we're going to get to why this happened here at the time of Jesus rather than the time here of the destruction of the temple. And I want to share a little bit what this binding of Satan means. Some of you may be thinking, well, we still have evil. We still have evil today. How is Satan bound? It doesn't seem like he's bound. Well, the Bible teaches he's only bound in one way, by deceiving the nations. He's no longer able to do that. So Satan is still active. He still has some type of power. That's why this line is represented by a dotted line. It doesn't mean all of his activities are squandered or squashed. For example, if you received a restraining order for one person, you can't go around. 
You can go around everybody else except that one person, right? Well, this was like a restraining order on Satan that God placed that there was one thing he could no longer do, and that was deceive the nations from hearing the gospel. And that's exactly what happened. We see at the binding of Satan back then that the gospel exploded, exploded with growth all over the world. People from every tongue and nation and tribe were hearing the gospel and coming to the gospel. And so the gospel, unlike what was in the Old Testament, right? It was a small group of people who were God's people. But in the New Testament, at the binding of Satan, it spread rapidly. So this perfectly aligns with what we've seen from church history. Maybe you're not convinced about the binding of Satan. I know that some aren't yet. Matthew chapter 12. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 26 through 29. I'll wait for you. I don't hear any pages turning, church. Matthew chapter 12, verse 26 through 29. We're going to be here for a little while, so go ahead and turn there. This is Jesus himself teaching the binding of Satan. And this was not during Revelations. Jesus was teaching the binding of Satan during his earthly ministry. So in this portion of Scripture... The religious leaders accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. So they're saying, yeah, he's casting out demons, but he's doing that by, by Satan's power himself. So Jesus responds in verse 26 of Matthew 12. says, and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Move to verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God again? He's saying, listen, if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, which we believe he was, he's saying the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he is first binds the strong man? Speaking about a binding of an individual. Then he indeed may plunder his house. Jesus was alluding to the binding of Satan that Satan's activities in some form were bound or hindered in his house. Satan's house used to be this world. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've, I've come into the world. I've conquered the strong man. I'm in his house and he's been bound. And that's why people have demons coming out of them. It's by the power of God. If that's happened, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the gospel is being proclaimed in what used to be the house of Satan, namely this world. So if you have a problem, or you talk to somebody who has a problem about the binding of Satan, first, they have to have a problem with Matthew chapter 12. Because Jesus taught in Matthew 12 that Satan was bound in some form then. The problem's not in Revelation, it's back then in Matthew 12. What and how was Satan bound? There's a verse that, saw, that talks about, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. What does that mean? Well, in this view that I'm sharing this morning... It, it perfectly teaches that this was the binding of Satan. This instituted the millennium that I believe we're living in now. It's a spiritual millennium. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne now. Satan still has some activity here, but he's not deceiving the nations like he once was able to do in the Old Testament. Theologians differ if this is a literal kingdom or if this is a spiritual kingdom. Those who believe it's a literal kingdom think that the world, these people are optimists. 
They, they think that the world is getting to be better and that the church is going to continue to grow and that it may go down for a while, but then God's going to use that and bring a lot of people into the church. That's called post-millennialism. And then there's also another view that this is a spiritual millennium. So I'm not getting into that too much. It's just a camp within this group I want to share about. So I want to get to future events. Many of you are wondering, well, what does this have to do with me today? What am I looking for in the future? So Revelations 20 through 22 are things that are going to take place after everything we just talked about, right? After these things. So let's go ahead and turn to Revelations 20. We'll look in verse 3. It wasn't until, I'd like to say, it wasn't until I understood this view that I actually felt like I could read Revelation and, and get something from it. That I was encouraged by how God encouraged those early Christians. Before, I didn't know what to make of what. So I encourage you, go back and read through Revelation. There's going to be a lot you don't understand, but there'll be little bits and pieces that will begin to, you'll be enlightened by. So in verse 3, we see that after that, Satan must be released for a little while. So this picks up here. We're in the millennium. We today are sometime in this present church age, sometime through here. And it says that in the future, Satan is going to be released for a little while. That is still to come. We are given more of a description of what this looks like. Verse 7 is where it picks up for things to take place after this. So from verse 7 onward are things in our future. Maybe immediately, maybe a little bit down the road. Verse 7 when we saw that the thousand years are ended, Satan must be released from his prison and will come out to what? He's going to do the same thing he couldn't do. Deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. To gather them for battle and their number is like the sand of the sea. So this is Satan preparing for war. He's loosed and there's going to be probably increased persecution and oppression of the church. So Satan is preparing for war. All the unbelievers on the earth, they're going to be turning against, deceived by Satan, turning against the Christians. So that's probably what's going to happen. In verse 9, it says, They march up over the broad plain of the earth. They surround the Christians. This could be symbolic or literal, but they're persecuting the Christians. And it's at this time in the future that Jesus Christ is going to sound the trumpet. We as a church are going to be raptured up. So here's the rapture. We're raptured up. And during this time, we meet with Jesus Christ in the air. If you read in Thessalonians about the rapture, we don't find wording of the rapture in Revelations. It's in other parts of the Bible. But we're raptured up. We meet Christ in the air. And it's like a bridegroom and a wedding procession. We are the entourage. And we usher in the church all together in one place. We usher in Jesus Christ back to the earth. And it's at this point that he judges, and it's the battle of Armageddon that happens. So we see in verse 9, this happens, they surround the Christians. All of this is like simultaneously, church. So the rapture happens, God comes down, we meet with him, he comes, and, and there's the battle of Armageddon. Verse 9, here's the battle. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So it's not this long, drawn-out battle, it's an immediate victory. In verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what happens next is after this battle, 
So the church, we're raptured up. Christ comes down. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. We usher him back down. And what happens next is the second coming. So there's that quick battle. What happens next is the final judgment, which is also called the great white throne, the sheep and the goats, or the judgment seat of Christ. This is literally when everybody who's ever lived is raised and they stand before God and he separates those who are unbelievers and those who are believers. And that's why it's the goats and the sheep. And it says in verse, chapter 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So believers, we're given a promise if we've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our name is written in this book. And when he finds our name in this book, we are taken to a place and those whose names are not found are thrown into the lake of fire, which is known as the second death. But as believers, our name is written in this book. Revelations 21 through 22 gives us a glorious promise of what is to come for us. Look in Revelations chapter 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, fulfilling what we saw in the Old Testament promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. So the book of Revelation is a glorious promise to the early church, but it's also to all of us that God will defeat and conquer all of his enemies. He defeated the former Jewish system persecuting the early church. He defeated the Roman Empire, the last kingdom that this world has ever known. And then he reinstituted his own kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, and he's seated on the throne right now. So that promise was given to the early church. That promise is also given to us that he is reigning and ruling. And any enemy in our life, God is going to conquer and he is going to destroy at the end of time. So that's a promise he's given to them. It's a promise he's given now. And it's a promise we see in Revelation he will fulfill. So now, no matter what we believe, church, maybe you believe this exactly. Maybe you believe it's something a little bit different than this. But our promise and our prayer is all the same. And we find it in the last words of Revelation. This should be our prayer, regardless of our view. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your word, your promises that you've given us. You are a mighty God in control of all things. God, we thank you for the promises you gave this early church, these seven churches that received this letter. And you encouraged them how you were going to take them through, that if they just endured for a little while the persecution, that you would give them a crown. 
they would be able to reign with you forever. God, we thank you, no matter what we face. As we sang this morning, it is well with my soul. God, we can only sing that because of the promises you've given us. And Revelation is a clear promise of those things. We have a hope and a glory to come, a new heavens and a new earth we have to look forward to. God, we thank you that whether there's persecution or not, whether it's a good life or a bad life, whether our circumstances are good or bad, we're healthy or not healthy, God, all of that is minuscule compared to the eternal promises we have that we find in your word. God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, that it washes us, that we can be your bride. God, we pray that we may sometime soon hear the trumpet and that we may ascend and meet you in the sky and usher you back down as your bride. God, we thank you that you are our husband, what it means to be the church, what a privilege it is. God, we thank you for your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.